0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. The 2020 Electoral College vote was decided by roughly 44,000 voters in three states. But many of those voters don't know much about our climate emergency. Rich Tao with the Swing Voter Project says those who want to advance the climate cause need to improve their messaging.
1: To find the people that I'm focus grouping, people at the tip of the spear electorally, and get a lot more of the messages that they need to hear about what still can be done and
0: get those through to them. As the recent IPCC report showed, we need to make big changes now to stave off the worst possible future outcomes.
2: The window for action is now. The best window for action in Washington is the next four to six months. After that, maybe in 10 years. And we don't have 10 years.
0: How much do swing voters care about climate? Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. Since the 2020 election, Rich Tao has been hosting monthly panel discussions with swing voters in key swing states. His swing voter project has been querying those who voted for Trump in 2016 and for Biden in 2020. Joining our conversation is journalist Andrew Friedman, who covers climate and energy for Axios. So, Rich, let's begin with you. You know, the U.N.'s Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently came out with another devastating new report, and U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres called the findings code red for humanity, adding that alarm bells are deafening and the evidence is irrefutable. Are swing voters hearing those alarm bells?
1: They're really not, Greg. And the focus groups that we did on August 10th certainly confirmed that. We had 13 Trump to Biden voters, people who voted for Trump in 2016 and then Biden in 2020. And only three of them had heard the news, which had come out the day before, about the IPCC report. So for us, it was, there was not deep penetration into their psyche about what was happening in what seemed to me to be pretty major news that got a huge amount of airplay and print play the day before.
0: Right, and tell me about these voters. These are what you call low-information voters, and they told you where they get their information from. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so these voters get their news from a variety of different sources. Uh, You know, some of them get their news from local news sources, local news organizations in the communities where they live. And by the way, these these voters all live in the, in among the 10 most competitive 2020 swing states. So we're not talking about people in Alabama, for example, or in Massachusetts. We're talking about upper Midwest and places like Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, and so forth. So uh, they, they get their news from uh, either local news sources, or they get their news from from CNN or Fox, um, they, from from cable news and elsewhere. But the thing is, they're, they seem to be missing some of the the biggest news stories that are out there. Um, and last month, for example, I'd asked about what was happening with the transportation bill winding its way through Congress. And, and most of them hadn't heard that there was such a bill going through Congress. So for me, this becomes sort of one sort of dispiriting conversation after the next, where you realize that certain things don't get through, but certain things do get through. For example, all the respondents a month ago, back in July, knew that, um, uh, that a building had collapsed in Surfside, Florida. So that that hadn't escaped their notice at all. But some of the big longer-term issues, the things that have great political relevance, like how many how many trillions of dollars Congress is going to spend on 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 infrastructure for example, they're not paying close attention.
0: Yeah, TV's drawn to those dramatic stories. In the focus group, you played a 2-minute clip from the CBS Evening News that highlighted the recent UN report as code red for humanity. Let's hear that clip.
1: Scientists say the planet is warming faster than at any time in at least 2,000 years.
0: Climate change is a problem that is here
2: now. Nobody is safe, and it's getting worse faster.
0: Clip goes on with greater detail, laying out the evidence. Where first of all, Rich, this was on mainstream network news, yet it seems like uh, very few people knew about it.
1: Yeah, we had people say, for example, well, I don't have time to watch the the nightly news. I have people who said they heard little strands of this information here or there, but they hadn't heard a report like this one that pulled it all together. So to me, I think that's also part of it is that they're hearing individual notes, but they're not hearing the whole song.
0: Right, I, there, there was one one respondent who said he had heard about drought in the West, but he hadn't heard about floods in the East. They hadn't kind of put together the whole whole country. Um, one of your panelists, Greg L from Pennsylvania, said he saw the headline but intentionally did not want to learn more. Let's listen. Come to think of it, I did see that on CNN, um, and it it did sound pretty bleak. It did kind of give some hope, but it sounded like we were far we we're closer to the Pivot point than we thought. It's accelerating
1: more rapidly. So I didn't get. I didn't want to read the article. Didn't want to read the article, Greg. The news was too bleak. <laughs> too bleak. Yeah.
3: With all that's going on, I don't need any more.
0: <laughs> so let's get to that. The, how do emotions play into news that gets through and what doesn't? This was really interesting for me, and I want to get to Andrew in a minute here about the work that we do dispersing information. Whether um, if a people's emotions are preventing them from hearing our work.
1: Well, that was the thing, Greg, that was so interesting. One of the questions I thought was was, uh, well, the set of answers to the questions I thought were most interesting had to do with sort of emotionally how they deal with this. And I asked people which of three categories they fell into, whether they, hearing this kind of news caused them to want to take action, and four of them said that. Three of them said it immobilized them, that they just found it so overwhelming they couldn't react. And then six of them said they basically avoid it. So you got four out of 13, basically, who are responding. And by the way, the way those people respond is to find plants. They don't have to water as much in their garden, buy more sustainable products, not um, uh, buy things with palm oil, for example. I mean, this is, those are the examples we heard. And, and recycling, of course. Recycling always comes up as the way people contribute and try to deal with, with climate change. So again, you look at the totality of what people do or say they do or are willing to do. And frankly, in my estimation, it doesn't add up to a whole lot.
0: Andrew, I'd like to get you in here because this this is the moment where I question whether I have I'm doing the right job. You know, you put out uh, interesting articles on Axios that are are tagged one minute read or three minute read as a long one. How does this make you feel about th- you know the the information we're putting out as as media
2: people? You know, I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> um, it's 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 depressing. I think um, you know we. Climate reporters overall, I think, are very aware of the emotional weight of this issue at this point. We feel it ourselves. Um, I communicate with a group of climate reporters. Um, some of us had kids around the same time, and all of us uh, started to think about the subject matter differently. Um, and we could no longer talk about 2030, 2040 projections and kind of separate that in our heads. Suddenly it was when my kid is 10 or 12 or whatever. And um, there really is an emotional weight of this. And this report came out, every headline was, I wouldn't say alarmist in the sense that it was overly alarmist. It was matching the tenor of the science and it was conveying what the scientists were saying, which was essentially you know, we have to press the brakes on this thing now, or we are in for potentially catastrophic impacts. And it actually read conservative to me. Uh, some of the language, if you actually read the report, you could see that the scientists were kind of holding back. If they were allowed to, they would have just, you know, used swear words during like half of that report. Um, I'm pretty convinced. Um So as somebody who communicates on this issue on a daily basis, I'm acutely aware that fear and alarm is immobilizing. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to tell people there's a Category 5 hurricane coming towards them, and it's scary. Um, It's more that we have to think about ways to communicate this issue in ways that make people feel... At least, like there's something to be done, or that they know how to channel the, their emotions. So it's not my job as a journalist to tell somebody um, you need to call your congressman and you need to do this and this and this. That's not that's not what I do. But at the same time, it isn't my job to just scare the daylights out of somebody and leave them uh, despondent. Um, you know, th- th- there's somewhat of a middle ground there. And there were some headlines that were basically like, you know, it's, it's just too late. And when you tell people, well, it's too late uh, to do much, everybody just throws up their hands and, and goes about their business. Um, and that's not really the case. We have choices of what we wanna do now. We have choices in 10 years, we have choices in 20 years. We can let this go on as long as we want. I mean, we have agency over this.
0: Right. I think about it. As someone who smoked for 30 years, there's been damage done, but there can still be a lot of choices. You can get healthy and and uh, affect the future. We do have a lot of choices and and more power than perhaps we realize. Rich Tow, you know, I'm thinking about the building collapse in Florida is alarming. Why does that get through, but somehow the news that Andrew's talking about doesn't?
2: Oh, wow. Maybe Andrew wants to take this question. Yeah. Andrew? Well. I mean, I, I think it's it, it plays better on TV.
0: But isn't weather porn and droughts and fires, that's great TV.
2: It is. And um, But what happens with that, what happens with weather porn is that they send a reporter out, they'll stand next to a fire zone, they'll talk about how big the fire is, and then they'll toss it back to the anchor. They don't make the connection to climate, um, not explicitly. Um, maybe they they will be more and more but still on network evening news um, you know watchdog groups that, that look at this say those connections still aren't being made. So the, the weather port aspect very much you know allows it to rocket up the the, the top story. but a, a building that just randomly collapses and you have surveillance video and you have people desperately searching, um and the question of will other buildings do the same in the same region i mean that's just it it, it's just a story that just seems more like something that's designed to capture the human imagination a little bit more than Oh my God! There's disasters all over the world, and they're increasing. And you know,
0: right? I think there's a you know uh, academics talk about agency. What can I do about it? And you could choose not to live on a in a waterfront condo in in Florida, for example. And uh, we have Michael Q, a swing voter from Dallas, Texas, and here's his reaction about his feeling of agency or lack of agency.
2: Should we take federal government money and and put it towards? Uh, how are you going to stop a tornado? How are you going to stop a hurricane? You know, you guys were talking about trying to, should we put federal money towards averting those disasters and avoiding them? I didn't raise my hand because I don't know how you're going to stop a tornado. I don't know how you're going to stop Katrina. I don't know how you're going to stop wildfires. I mean, just because you throw money on, at it, that's, that's a natural disaster, you know? It just happens.
0: Rich, let's get your take on that feeling of kind of helplessness there that, that, uh, that Michael's expressing and how, how that relates to what you hear from these swing voters.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't interpret that as much about helplessness, although that's clearly part of what he's saying. It was also a, a sense that we don't want to waste government money trying to stop something that's going to happen anyway. And there's certainly, I think, with people whose politics lean at least a little bit right, and certainly among people who are further right, there's just a sense that this is sort of a left-wing government boondoggle. Um, and uh, you know, if you read uh, you know, a George Will column about this in the Washington Post that came out on uh, August 12th, it's the same kind of implication about this, which is that uh, this is more about the left trying to impose their larger agenda and they just found climate as a way to do that. So, you know, I might be overreading what he said, but when I start hearing comments like, you know, government spending having to do with climate and weather-related events, um, there's a real skepticism there. And that's been around for a long time and I think it's going to persist for a long time. And the other thing I'd say about this too, Greg, since obviously you cover climate, is I, th- I think there's a, a lot of, false expectations about what can be done being conveyed to people. And what I mean by that is, at best, at best, we can try to limit the, the increase in warming over the next several decades, which will still lead to unbelievable amounts of unpleasantness like we're seeing right now. The idea that we're going to roll it back to the way it was, the, the, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere to the way it was in 1950 or in 1850, or pick some date in the past, we're not capable and able to do that now. So, the idea that the government spends all this money that these bad things are going to stop or they're going to happen significantly less often than they're happening now is not something that people, I think, should be told can happen. It's going to set a lot of false expectations. And because of that, and the thing, and my concern about this is that when people see that trillions of dollars. Are being proposed to be spent to, to to sort of fight global warming, and they don't see an impact in their day-to-day lives or the change in the way the world is functioning. They're going to be even more cynical about what happened and why it was pushed upon them. So I'm I'm just I'm I've got a I'm not saying that we shouldn't deal with it. I I think it's a clearly a huge huge crisis. It's a massive problem. We have all these things we have to deal with. I think about it all the time. But I think we have to be very careful in terms of our communication about what's reasonable in terms of what we can do and what's reasonable about what the outcome would be of the things that we can do. Because managing expectations is critically important.
0: Andrew Friedman, do you think uh, our ability to affect the climate is being oversold? Uh,
2: Yes and no. I I think that we have the ability to significantly affect the course of things beyond the next couple of decades. So, you know, the IPCC report actually goes into some detail on where outcomes start to diverge. So if you bring emissions down uh, on a very aggressive uh, basis, what year do you start seeing that uh, in global average temperatures, in heat waves, in uh, sea level rise, that sort of thing. Um, and there's some things that they call essentially irreversible on human timescales, which is sea level rise na- mainly. When you start a Greenland ice sheet melting, kind of hard to, to turn it off. But it's not that hard to, to stop the escalation of heat waves, for example, if you look at 2040, 2050 timeframe. And you're talking about you know your hottest heat wave now so a pacific northwest heat wave that we that they had in june which may have killed upwards of 600 people it's turned out whether that's going to occur once every five years or whether that's going to occur once every 30 years and that makes a, a very big difference but there are people out there like Bill Gates and some other um, like techno optimists who are basically saying, you know, we need to invent our way out of this and invent things that can suck carbon out of the air and essentially do what Rich said we, we can't do, which is kind of turn the clock back to the amount of carbon that was in the atmosphere uh, decades ago. And in, in theory, if you invent uh, synthetic trees that are effective enough and other things, uh, you could do that eventually. But I, I think it's a risk management problem. And I, I think that that the way the Biden administration is, is selling it is as a jobs program. Um, the way that most climate communicators look at it and climate reporters is that it's a risk management issue. Um and it's not an issue of like how are you going to stop a, a hurricane. Well, we can't. Um, but what we can do is potentially better prepare our coastlines for the sea level rise we're going to see. Um, better prepare uh, for for storms that might be coming and try to forestall the worst of the worst. I talked to the climate minister from a small island country yesterday, and. This is an existential issue for for some people. To him, uh, the difference between uh, you know two foot to three point five foot sea level rise is the difference between a country and no country. Um, so if we can modulate that by reducing emissions through twenty fifty, and then we affect the outcomes beyond, um, that's big. But is that going to affect people? It, you know. Be seen in people's backyards the next two to three years when you know the next when the next presidential presidential election comes. Uh, no, so you know the political payoff question comes in there.
0: You're listening to a conversation about how voters in swing states are feeling about climate. Coming up, journalist Andrew Friedman reflects on the way people choose to engage with news about climate disruption
2: so that's why it was so enlightening and so depressing to be part of this focus group, to see how much people knew or didn't know and how much people switched off at the opportunity to know more.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. We're talking with Rich Tau of the Swing Voter Project and Axios climate reporter, Andrew Friedman, about the climate views of swing voters during the lull between election cycles. Last fall, Joe Biden beat Donald Trump by seven million in the popular vote, but the electoral college was determined by 44,000 people in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin. I asked Rich Tau to explain the insights his Swing Voter Project has offered about the people that play this outsized role in our national politics.
1: These are the folks we're talking to every month, the people in those states and the other seven states that were close uh, in the last election. And uh, every month we try to find out where they stand on on leading issues. And what I can tell you about them is that um, they pay close attention to some things, as we talked about. They pay much less attention to other things. They soured on Donald Trump. Uh, having voted for him at various points in the last four and a half years. Some soured on him very early. Some waited until the pandemic to sour on him. Um, but they all had their reasons. And many of them voted for Joe Biden because they just wanted to see things calm down in the country. When I asked them what emotion they feel when they see Biden on TV, it's it's calm, it's uh, reassured. Um, that, that's, that's what a number of them say, that they the emotion they feel, and, and they uh, really don't want Trump back. They they don't have much use for him. Uh, this month, for the first time, since I started asking the question in January, I, I asked them, how many of you regret having voted for Biden? And out of the 13, two told me they regretted it and that they would take Trump back if Trump were running against Biden again. But th- that w- almost every month, it's unanimous or just one person dissenting that they would stick with Biden and not vote for Trump again.
0: Andrew, you write the Daily Axios Generate along with Ben Geeman. You noted recently a quote, the the Biden White House is viewing rising gasoline prices as a source of potential political peril to the point where they're encouraging OPEC plus to pump more oil, even though that's at odds with their climate policy. There was a very awkward moment where White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was trying to square that and say that we need more oil while we're trying to get off of it. You know, so at the same time, that's you know, we're hearing from, from Rich that this you know people don't think that much about this. What's going on with the politics of that?
2: You know, the politics of that issue is really fascinating because really what they're worried about is they're worried about inflation. and they they're, they're seeing uh, the Republican argument on the economy start to stick in congressional districts. And they're seeing uh, swing district Democrats, realized what the polling is and what they're facing and it, one of them one very important uh, democrat uh, recently decided to bow out of their race in uh, wisconsin and on the gas price issue you know it, it, it's fascinating because they're out there talking about you know uh, uh, getting to a 50 percent ev target by 2030 Uh, getting uh, net zero emissions by 2050. We're going to the Glasgow summit and they're trying to show uh, progress by passing both of these infrastructure packages. But at the same time, they recognize that the one price that people encounter on a daily basis is the price of gas. So they see it going up and they often blame the occupant of the office, uh, whoever it is, even though the U S president has almost nothing that they can do about the price of gas. So, I mean, the one thing they can do is release everything in the, in the Spro in the strategic petroleum reserve, which is ridiculously pronounced Spro. It's you had Trump who eventually negotiated by getting on the phone with the Saudi King, And you have Biden, who uh, recently had his national security advisor issue a kind of a broadside memo saying, you know, what OPEC plus has agreed to is just not enough. And they're worried that it threatens the economic recovery. So they're looking at the Delta strain. They're looking at inflation and they're looking at gas prices and they're saying, okay, whoa.
0: Yeah, um, and those of us with a we jump in here that with a political memory recall the hot summer of I think two thousand nine where there were gas was approaching five dollars, and that's you know was partly what fueled the Tea Party. So uh, you know there's a, some real pain or trauma for some some who remember um, how painful gas prices can be. But Rich, your panelists unanimously say they don't vote according to price gas prices.
1: Yeah, that, that, well, that's interesting because we did hear that the uh, the other night when we did the, these focus groups. Um, but I specifically asked them about how much gas prices specifically affect uh, their voting behavior. I and mean, whether they would vote somebody out of office because gas prices have gone up, whether they would reward somebody with re-election if gas prices went down. And they all looked at me like I was crazy and said no. But I will tell you, in prior months, people have told me they're concerned about inflation generally. So you have to think about, to, to Andrew's point, you know, this is part of a larger narrative. It's not just the cost of one product, it's the cost of that and everything else. I mean, if gas prices go up and everything else goes down, yeah, not a big concern. But if it's gas and milk and rent and you go down the list of things that people spend a lot of money on, you, you're, you're talking about a real problem there.
0: I'd like to play another clip of a question from Rich Tao during the focus group and an answer that stood out to me in light of the recent trillion dollar infrastructure deal.
1: So assuming there is new government funding for transportation as a result of legislation currently working its way through Congress, how should the money be divided between roads and public transit? And by that, I mean public transit being things like subways and railroads. You think it should be divided 50-50 between roads and transit? Or do you think it should be skewed in one direction or the other? how many of you think it should be 50 50? None of you. Okay. So all seven of you are telling me that the, that the money should go more toward roads than to transit. Okay. Akeem, why should it go to, why should it go to roads? Wow. This is actually something that I've never had to ponder. Um, I just think of roads being um, um, more freedom, more, more you doing what you want to do You know, like you don't have to pay a fee this way or that way, as opposed to transit, you know,
2: that comes with the cost.
0: That was Akeem B. from Pennsylvania. Andrew Friedman, what do you hear when you hear Akeem talking about roads and transit in that way?
2: You know, I I hear somebody probably living somewhere that doesn't have uh, an extensive public transportation network, which is many places in the United States. You know, I I live um, just outside D.C., and normally, I, I would be taking the metro everywhere. But because of the pandemic, I I, I think I've taken the metro maybe four or five times double-masked places just because, like, the perception of risk, um, which is itself a whole a field of study. So I think people are even more hesitant right now to say, oh, we should pour money into public transit because they can't even imagine themselves – getting into a compartment with one other unfamiliar person, let alone, you know, 25 people on a train.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting that he sees transit as having a cost, whereas driving a car is free. Even though he pays, uh, you know, taxes when he buys gasoline for the roads, but somehow that's less visible than a than a transit than a transit ticket. Um, you know, I want to get back as we get approach the end here. You know, there's more than one panelist expressed feeling stuck in getting back to this kind of perception emotion that I think underlines a lot of this as we're talking about. Here's Ann B from Arizona.
4: I'm a native to Arizona, so I've been here over 50 years (laughs) and I have physically seen the differences over the years, especially over the last probably decade or less. But so I, I, I I know that it's, it's real, but it, it doesn't make me go, oh my gosh, I've got to go out and completely change my whole lifestyle and, and go that way. But I also know I can't, ignore it and avoid it because I see it. So I'm kind of in that stuck phase of, you can't deny what you know, hindsight's 2020. I'm just, I've got to, you know, you've got to accept it, but it causes anxiety. It causes, you know, stress because you can't avoid it, you can't deny it, but I don't see me going out and moving into the forest and living off the land.
0: That's Ann B. from Arizona during this focus group here of swing voters with Rich Town and Andrew Friedman. Andrew Friedman, that brings up for me Al Gore's frog and water that's, you know, warming so slowly that it doesn't make the frog jump out of the pot
2: yeah, except right now we're warming so quickly that, that that there are people around the world who are jumping out of the pond um, and and moving. Um, but it really struck me what she said because people are anxious. People do see it. Um, they don't see it everywhere. these these both of the focus groups um, most recently uh, showed that not everybody responded by saying, Uh, you know, extreme weather is getting worse where they are. More people did perceive it globally that they're hearing about more um, natural disasters and extreme weather events globally. But, you know, it takes, to me, it kind of took until people in the focus groups knew somebody affected by one of these disasters for them to really kind of get it. Um, somebody knew somebody in the, in the heat wave, uh, in the Northwest, somebody knew somebody who had to evacuate due to a wildfire in California. Another person had a parent who had to evacuate because of a hurricane in Florida. Uh, and they were worried about how many hurricanes they had last year. Um, so yeah, you know, people are like that. Our risk perception is off. Um, you know, we worry about the thing that's right in front of us. We don't worry about 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Um, that's just the way we're built. But part of it is there are so many things that that are out of our control over this. I mean, it, it's not going to solve the issue if my wife and I suddenly become vegetarian um, and also – buy an electric car and also stop flying and stop at one child. Like, that's not going to solve the issue globally. But it studies do show that it actually has an impact on people around you. It actually makes you feel um, more engaged. Um, you're more likely to change uh, your voting habits. Um, and really what needs to happen is, is societal and systemic change. Um, So what the government does matters. Who's in the government matters. Paying attention to those issues matters. So that's why it was so enlightening and so depressing to be part of this focus group, to see how much people knew or didn't know and how much people switched off at the opportunity to know more because it, it, it scared them or was depressing. Now, I get it. There's a pandemic. There's crime, there's inflation, there's a lot of bad stuff going on right now. So if you see something like on that CBS News clip, the the UNEP head uh, of the UN Environment Program, her soundbite was, it's getting worse, nobody's safe, Uh, you're welcome. You know, when really she should be saying, we have the chance to turn it around, we have all these opportunities to turn it around, um, this is what we could be doing right now. Uh, let's go do this. So much is writing on what action happens now. And I think any climate activist and any person with a memory of what's happened on the climate issue over the last 20 years will tell you the window for action is now. The best window for action in Washington is the next four to six months after that, maybe in 10 years. And we don't have 10 years.
0: Which gets to the, as we wrap up here, the point of, you know, can our democracy solve this? You know, what Washington Governor Jay Inslee billed himself as the climate candidate, and his candidacy, along with Tom Steyer, faded pretty fast. So I'd like to ask you both, as we wrap up here, you know, do you think our democracy is up to the task based on what we're learning about these swing voters that have such a, a key role, or does the system need to be, I don't know, say revolution is maybe too strong, but dramatically disrupted in some way? You know, can can democracy solve? I don't even like to say solve because, as Rich said earlier, it's it's already there's, there's you know there's going to be rising temperatures no matter what we do. We're not going to solve this, but can democracy get the job done, Rich? How?
1: Well, what I'd say, Greg, is that I think. That the people who are trying to advance this agenda, and obviously setting aside the White House, but people outside of the White House, I think have a unique opportunity that they have yet to seize. And that is to find the people that I'm focus grouping, people at the tip of the spear electorally. They're all knowable. We know which counties they're in. We could do a pretty great job if you wanted to do some data mining to figure out basically exactly who they are and where they live. Is to get a lot more of the messages that they need to hear about what still can be done and get those through to them. And I'm not just talking about running ads on network TV that are watched by people who are 75 and older. I'm talking about going where people are themselves, watching the media, getting their news these are local news, online news, whatever it happens to be, Facebook, a number of these people get their news that way. And f- and making sure that that at least two or three key messages that would drive the political conversation are are seen and to whatever degree they can be internalized. But right now, this entire conversation is happening where there's a huge gap between what Biden is saying and what these people are hearing. And I think as long as that gap persists, there's not going to be the political will to do a lot of this stuff. They're going to be vulnerable to exactly what Andrew said, which is the charge of it's going to be too expensive or it's going to be ineffective. And why are we bothering? It's hopeless. Whatever. All the negative messaging is going to get in the way.
0: Andrew, we got about one minute. Your last word, can democracy get the job done?
2: I mean, there's all these questions about the future of American democracy right now and how stable we really are. Um, I I think, yes, I I agree with Rich. I I, I think that these focus groups really showed when you ask the question, what does Biden want to do on climate change? Maybe one person has a fuzzy description in each focus group. Does Biden support or oppose the Green New Deal? Now, keep in mind, the Green New Deal is not even a bill in Congress. It's, it's, It's systemic change and it's a proposal and Biden opposes it these people do not know that there are republicans out there running ads saying the democrats want to implement this radical new deal that's going to come and you know take away your meat you know like take your steak away they're going to be vulnerable to that type of messaging if the biden climate agenda is not defined for them in some sort of message that that resonates so they think clearly the white house the democrats think the jobs thing will get through um i don't know that that's correct i I think that there are other messaging needs and there are outside groups that need to be doing what rich said they need to be doing uh on the messaging side um on the reporting side we'll keep doing what we do um however feckless that is um, in terms of its, its effectiveness.
0: I've been talking about the climate views of swing voters with Rich Tau of the Swing Voter Project and Axios reporter Andrew Friedman. Coming up, we dig into the latest climate science in the recent IPCC report and how the data might be used in the upcoming climate negotiations in Scotland.
3: Obviously, you know, the 1.5 and 2 degrees is on people's minds. But also, uh, in terms of just, uh, let's say, adaptation purposes, what, what can we expect about the frequency of extreme events? I mean, can we have a quantification of
0: that, even if it's not exact? That's up next when Climate One continues. In early August, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released a report unequivocally connecting global warming and extreme weather to human-driven greenhouse gas emissions, and warning of much more dramatic climate futures if we don't change course soon. Ram Ramaswamy is director of NOAA's Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory and professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at Princeton. Since 1992, he's been involved in writing and editing these IPCC assessment reports. He's a review editor of the most recent report. About a decade ago, Bill McKibben wrote an article in Rolling Stone titled Global Warming's Terrifying New Math that earned a lot of attention and introduced the concept of a carbon budget into the national conversation. I asked Ramaswamy what scientists know now about how much carbon can be safely put into the sky and how close we are to that limit.
3: Coming, you know, a decade later, uh, we certainly know a lot more about uh, both the energy part of the story, uh, how much is going out, how much is not going out, uh, and where is it going, where is the excess energy going. We also know about the carbon budgets more uh, in terms of uh, not only how much there is in the atmosphere, which of course is available from direct measurements, but also some knowledge, some increased knowledge of the efficiency of the sinks in both the land and ocean. How much carbon can they soak up? Uh, given the increased emissions? uh, And are they going to be as efficient in the future as they have been in the past? So we know know much more about that. Um, There still are knowledge gaps, of course, but uh, the the knowledge is getting onto more firmer footing uh, than it was a a decade ago. And it's telling us really about how much more emissions, if they do occur, uh, is going to result in how much more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere.
0: Sure. And so there's energy coming in in the form of sunlight every day. Some energy is going back out, bouncing off uh, ice or the earth. And that human activity burning fossil fuels has disrupted that energy balance or energy budget. You know, how are clouds changing due to global warming? And how does that amplify human-caused warming? Because clouds are a big part of this new report.
3: Absolutely. Clouds clouds are uh, have been one of the biggest uncertainties. Uh, because of uh, theoretical gaps, uh, lack of observations, um, and and changes in clouds is kind of the most important aspect that we are chasing. Um, there are now different kinds of clouds. There are low clouds which tend to be mostly water. Then there are high clouds which tend to be mostly ice. And then there's in between clouds which are mixed phase. Historically, in the in the in the modeling part of the story, the low clouds have been very important in terms of Uh, determining whether clouds are going to be uh, positive feedback or a negative feedback on the warming caused by CO2 and other gases. And we have been wrestling with that for now quite a few years, I mean, more than a decade, about what is the role of the low clouds. And now for the first time, the observations, the uh, other constraints uh, in terms of processes um, and then the uh, theoretical understanding has improved such that uh, the assessment, actually this assessment AR6 actually concludes now that the sign of the low cloud feedback is likely positive, which means to say that, you know, the amplification is from the low cloud component is going to be positive, um, which is something that, you uh, you know, has been uh, has been a question all along.
0: So does amplification make climate change worse or better but or it's
3: more warm? I mean, if CO2 is warming the climate, it's going to the low clouds are such that uh, they the change in them due to the CO2 increase is going mm-hmm. to make the planet warmer.
0: One of the questions I've heard from other scientists over the years is about the sensitivity of the climate system, basically how hard we can push on this system, how much we can jam into it, and how quickly it will disrupt, and potentially how quickly it would would uh, correct if we reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There was some positive news a while back where said, hey, we think actually if we stop burning this stuff, it could kind of return to balance quicker than we might have thought. What do we know about the sensitivity of the system?
3: We actually now have uh, a a better grounding for establishing the limits of the sensitivities. So there's uncertainty of course, but what has happened is that now instead of relying entirely on models, there has been reliance on actually four different types of information. And so this four lines of attack uh, this time in the the sixth assessment report actually has uh, enabled uh, a better quantification uh, and a better grounding for the results that have that have been shown.
0: So there's greater confidence. Greta Thunberg tweeted that the report, this recent report from the IPCC, the sixth assessment report, is a solid but cautious summation of the current best available science. Science. One of the observations of the IPCC and science in general, that it is inherently conservative. Um, so tell us about you personally, put aside the IPCC, is it... Is this do- document underplaying the real risks?
3: Right. I, I IPCC um, does pride itself on doing the best assessment uh, based on the literature uh, in front of them. And I think they do that. One of the things I would point to in this uh, assessment, which I think has taken it further uh, in terms of, uh, shall I say, a little bit of boldness, as, but with confidence, um, is the uh, projection of the regional uh, climates. Uh, especially extremes uh, and not only extremes uh, but also compounded extremes. Uh, so for example, um, you know excess precipitation followed by floods, um, heat waves followed by air quality, degradation, uh, fires and atmospheric composition. I think these kind of things have been articulated uh, with both evidence from the past as well as modeling. Um, and especially you know, high resolution models which can then get into regional space. So that I think is something that um, offers, uh, a, a, I would say a different kind of information level, more than you know, the global mean centric, or even continental-centric uh, things in the previous assessments,
0: right? And those, that's the kind of information that policymakers can act on. Say, like, oh, what's going to happen in my city or my state? Tell me how high I need to build that seawall. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, about, you know, we don't know how the sinks are going to uh, operate if they're going to be as active as they have been in the past. And according to the report, one thing that just, you know, made me my jaw drop when I read this was that ocean heat uptake accounts for about 91% of the total energy change. If oceans were not absorbing so much of the heat that we're pumping into the atmosphere, that average would be 120 degrees double. So the, the oceans are really saving us from so much. But how much can the oceans absorb?
3: Yeah, that's a good point. I think, and in fact, the one region on the earth where it's really acting like a big soaker, of both heat and carbon is the deep Southern Ocean, the high latitude of the Southern Ocean, where there is this very deep conve- uh, convection, which occurs around just around the Antarctic near the Drake Passage, and that is drawing in enormous amounts of heat as well as carbon. So that's one region, and but overall in the global oceans, um, the heat uptake is a very significant quantity. In fact, of all the indicators of climate change, that heat going into the ocean. It is kind of the most raw indicator of anything serious happening to the climate system because the ocean is a vast body, uh, you know, vast volume. And it is kind of, if its heat uptake is increasing globally, that means there is so much heat that's available to, you know, cause a lot of uh, changes in not just oceans, but also the ocean atmosphere uh, interactions can cause changes in the atmosphere.
0: And in the past, some of the IPCC reports have been criticized for like overlooking some key points where the scientists couldn't grease. For example, perhaps the, you know, the Antarctic ice sheet or those sorts of things. Uh, there have been some footnotes that were really big said, Oh, you know, um, have forest fires been included? We're seeing fires all over the, Europe. Uh, we've seen them in the Amazon in recent years, North America, Europe, everywhere seems to be on fire. You know, those are trees that have been storing carbon going up in smoke. Has that been adequately considered in this report? It has
3: been. I think it's one of the uh, instances of the compounded extremes uh, that are being talked about, mainly because, uh, you know, you have droughts, heat waves affecting the carbon storage in the trees. Uh, and then it's very susceptible to a burn very easily. And so that causes a fire. Uh, so they, they are being accounted for. I think the one thing with the fires is uh, we um, have to still get the uh, the, the fuel, the, the what, what's the carbon fuel in the tree, in the vegetation uh, in a more detailed manner, uh, you know, because I think that's one area where we tended not to look at very closely and, and do the budgets. So that is an area that requires budgeting so that you can find out how much carbon is getting stored. This is partly true in Alaska, for example, where the carbon uh, has, has been stored and then Alaska has been getting to record high summer temperatures. And so that is really proving to be a very easy crown for uh, the burning of forests. Uh, so there are some observations that we can uh, bank upon. Uh, the models need some... A significant improvement in that regard.
0: Ram Ramaswamy is director of NOAA's Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory and professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at Princeton. He's been involved in the IPCC for a long time and is review editor of a chapter of the most recent report. Uh, professor, how do you hope that this information will play into COP26, the upcoming climate summit in Glasgow, where the world will come together to move forward on the Paris Climate Agreement?
3: Great question. I, I I think it's going to play a very significant uh, role. It'll be very visible. Uh, for example, the World Meteorological Organization uh, and the IPCC um, are going to have a pavilion uh, at COP26, uh, which is going to focus on the decadal prediction and uh, what what does, for example, the decade, the next few decades are, are going to bring. What are they going to bring? Obviously, you know, the 1.5 and 2 degrees is on people's minds but also uh, in terms of just uh, let's say adaptation purposes, what, what can we expect about the frequency of extreme events? I mean, can we have a quantification of that? Even if it's not exact, just the frequency, I mean, is it going to be like uh, category 5 storms now, three in a decade instead of maybe one in a decade, 20 years ago, uh, can we get information on them? I think that's the question that's being asked at the international level, and even at the national level uh, in the US, as well as in places like UK and uh, a lot of countries in Europe, um, I think the question is uh, is, is rising to the level of, uh, hey, what can you tell us about uh, how I can cope with uh, any extremes happening in some part of my country? What can we say about these regional happenings? Um, And it's not just the frequency of occurrence, but also the spatial extent, Uh, you know, for example, are hurricanes now going more poleward? Uh, Are they going more towards landfalling? What happens if they hit land? So how often do they hit land? Uh, And then there are other things like, you know, what I would call very, uh, on a more local, on a much more local scale are things like tornadoes and uh, severe storms like in the Midwest. So there are lots of questions that, you know, uh, people who are making decisions are asking. And this would be a focus, I think, heavily uh, in the COP and on how well the scientific community, as well as the impacts community, how, how well can they give us information on these uh, regional extremes, uh, you know, such that there can be adaptation measures uh, put in place for them.
0: We're sitting here talking about this. It's all pretty dark. And some people have said, yeah, this report tells us what we already knew, you know, how, how, how kind of how screwed we are. Any, any bright points in this?
3: Um, I, I don't think it's it's dark. I think there is more information coming along. I mean, it's uh, information coming along as best as uh, human minds can uh, build it up and assimilate it. Uh, so it, there are some, I think, early alerts kind of thing coming along. So uh, it's like, you know, early, early information is a good thing to have up our sleeve uh, to adapt to. Uh, if, if politicians
0: I mean, and governments, early information is useful if <laughs> if humans and politicians <laughs> respond to it, but we haven't listened to the scientists for a couple of decades.
3: Right. And, you know, as the uh, as the sort of uh, system gets uh, more and more into a phase where the, the forcing becomes very strong and overcomes uh, internal variability to get you a stronger signal, I think some of the things are maybe getting... It may be able to forecast them better than before. The thing that um, we are we are kind of getting from uh, the impacts people and climate risks people is this early information also helps to decide helps them decide um, how to cast investments. And the earlier you know, the investment bodies have this information, whether it's nations or you know private sector, um, they feel that that's very useful for them. To get this information, of, of course, the information has to be accurate. But I think that is kind of a way where communities are coping, are learning, are, are planning strategies on how to how to deal with this uh, information that comes in early.
0: Professor Wamaswamy, thank you for sharing your uh, your insights on the new science, on the latest science, with our Climate One audience. Thank you, Greg,
3: and thanks to Climate One.
0: On this Climate One, we've been talking about the latest IPCC report and the climate views of swing voters. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be awkward or depressing or difficult. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance and open up the climate conversation. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Ariana Brocious is our producer and audio editor. Our audio engineer is Arnav Gupta. Our team also includes Steve Fox, Kelly Pennington, and Tyler Reed. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.